Hi, and welcome to Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We are committed to serving our community and the community abroad. We pray that the word you are about to hear will be a blessing to your life and that you allow the Holy Spirit to open your heart and receive what the Lord is speaking to you. All right, somebody say, He is risen! He is risen! He's risen from the dead just like he said. Okay, thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you could make it alive to us. We pray that you'd help us to understand the things that are spoken in this word. Thank you, God, that by the spirit you illuminate our minds and hearts. Help us to understand the reality and the purpose of the resurrection more than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to look at the first chapter of 2 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, you could follow me. This is the last letter that Paul wrote to Timothy and the final words before he was put to death for his faith. And we're going to read just part of the first chapter. I just thank God for being with you today. What an incredible resurrection weekend. What an incredible time we had Friday. I mean, if you weren't here, boy, I don't know how you could even capture it on on the live stream of video. I mean, it was amazing. One of the best we've ever had in our 38 years. And so we're thanking God that we can continue this momentum of Holy Week on Resurrection Sunday. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child or my son in the faith. So Timothy was his main protege, as we would say in the streets, his main melon. And he is the guy that he was entrusting the furtherance of the gospel to carry on his legacy and his ministry. Paul, I'm sorry, Timothy was already an apostle and or a bishop. So he was overseeing not just a local church, but many, many churches based on the network that Paul developed. And he's praying and he's, he's talking, he's talking about how he prays for him night and day, verse three. He says, and I remember your tears, verse four. And I am now filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so he's bringing out the fact that Timothy came from a long line of believers. Uh, He was a third-generation believer. Uh, His grandmother was already a believer, so she was probably one of the original followers of Christ, maybe walked with Jesus, uh, maybe met him personally. And then you have Lois, the uh, mother of Timothy. And then we see Timothy. And so he had an incredible heritage. And being brought up in my Roman Catholic upbringing, I just thank God for the incredible heritage of being taught about Easter and being taught about Christmas and understanding historically Uh, what this is all about. And as we think of Christianity, before I continue on there, 
Christianity is a faith that's based on historical events. It's not a philosophy. It's not primarily a book, although we read about it in a book and we hear it preached. But all the preaching and everything that's in this book is based on historical events. And so everything is based on a big story that is weaved together from 6,000 years ago until today, approximately 6,000 years ago. We don't know exactly how long. And so whether it's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you know, the creation story, as the scientists would say, the Big Bang. They don't know where the bang came from, but it brought about the universe all of a sudden, in a sudden spurt, boom, everything had a burst of energy that created what we have now in the cosmos. And then, of course, we have the Adam and Eve, the failure of our original parents, chromosome DNA, and other aspects have shown that we've come from one original father and mother. It's amazing how even many scientists are starting to understand this. And then we have the flood. Then we have Abraham being called out of the Chaldean nation or Babylon. And then we have Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, the greatest demonstration of God's power up until the resurrection was he constantly referred back to the fact that he departed the Red Sea and he defeated Rahab, which was another way of saying Egypt and Pharaoh and the demonic powers behind that. And then he talks about so many other things throughout the book as we're going to get into Joshua, the sun standing still and the promised land being taken. But the greatest demonstration of God's power of all time Something that everything in history has pivoted from, even the way we divide history, B.C. and A.D., is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That is the greatest demonstration of God's power. In the New Testament, we don't refer back to the parting of the Red Sea as God's mightiest act. Now we always refer back to the resurrection of Christ from the dead because, as it tells us in the book of Ephesians, He rose from the dead far above, not just above, but far above every principality and power and name that can be named, not only in this world, but that world which is to come. And the principalities and powers are other ways of talking about the next realm, the spiritual realm. They could be either angelic powers or princes or demonic that rule over nations and even stars in the heavens. And so Jesus rose above every principality and power and every name that can be named. And that's why it says he put all things under his feet. So this is the greatest day that we celebrate all year because all of human history pivots on this. All the prophets desire to see this day and didn't see it. Moses desired to see this day, Abraham, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, even Adam and Eve were aware that one day there would be a second Adam who would come, the last Adam, I should say, and that last Adam would be the one who destroyed death and brought to life. Death was abolished and brought to life uh, immortality. And they were waiting for the day this this God-man would come and bring about all of that which was spoken, heal all that which was ill, reconcile all that which was lost. And in one three-day period, he was able to undo the horrific curse that was on the earth from the fall of man, which took place many, many, many years ago. 
And so this is the day that everything in your life, everything in the past, everything in the present, and everything in the future will be pivoted upon the resurrection of Christ. And we're going to see why that is the case. And so Christianity is based on events, even though we have a book that talk about it. But it was based upon not just events, but not just, not as people would say, as I studied in college, Joseph Campbell and others, myths to live by. It's not a myth. This is a historical fact, a historical reality that we pivot off of. And so this was the faith that was handed down to Timothy. But just because you were born in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Did you hear what I just said? Just because your mother's a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. You, you say, ask somebody, are you a Christian? Yeah, I mean, I was raised in a Christian home. Well, that's being a cultural Christian. Being a cultural Christian is not biblical. I mean, it's okay that a culture could be influenced by Christianity, but you are not born a Christian. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't have grandchildren. Everybody has to be born from above to experience the kingdom, to experience the resurrection. Every individual has to. And uh, so nowadays, if you were born in Germany, you think you're a Lutheran. You're born in Sweden, you're an Anabaptist. You're born in England, you're Anglican. If you're born in Greece, you're Greek Orthodox. You're born in Italy, you're Roman Catholic. You, you, you may be Roman Catholic, but it doesn't mean you're a Christian. That's being a cultural Christian. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I mean, you even have uh, uh, the Orthodox Church fighting each other, the Ukrainian bishop and the Orthodox bishop in Russia. They're b both blessing their own armies. That's not biblical. Who, God isn't confused, right? So that's cultural Christianity. And so Paul did not want Timothy to just be, you know, you're a third-generation Christian. Uh, you think you're a Christian just because it's your heritage, just because you're used to it. So this is why he says this in verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. I love that. Fan into flame. God is always filled with passion and fire and enthusiasm. That's who God is. And so he's saying to Timothy, I want you to fan into flame that gift of God, that passion of God. That is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. And so even though this man was a bishop, this man was overseeing other leaders. This man was a preacher. This man was an apostle. He still had to be told by somebody else, you have to fan into flame the gift of God. Christianity becomes a routine. Some of you are here only because it's Easter. Let the truth be told. I mean, don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. You have Easter Christians. You have, Christ, uh, you have Christmas Christians. And hey, I'd rather you come once or twice a year than not at all. So God bless you, welcome you. You're part of the family. We're here for you. But the point is, Christianity can become a routine where we take it for granted. Like I was touched when my wife came up and did that awesome communion, and you could tell the impact that Christianity has had on her. Uh, she remembered her first Good Friday, her first Resurrection Sunday, and you could tell that she still is uh, connected emotionally to the time she realized her sins were forgiven. 
She realized that Christ really did rise from the dead. It wasn't just in her Catholic catechism. It wasn't just a routine. It wasn't just because her parents believed it. It wasn't because she was brought up a Catholic. It was because at that time in her life, she was able to pivot the rest of her life to the historical fact that Jesus rose. She connected because she experienced salvation for herself. And so Paul is urging Timothy, I want you to fan into flame that gift. I don't want you to be some wishy-washy cultural Christian routine, traditional, and that's all you have. And, uh, you know, everything is just because you're used to doing it, because you were socially accustomed to doing it, because it was part of your ecosystem growing up. It was part of your family legacy. That's all good. I want that in my family. I want my kids to be used to having Christmas and Easter and all these incredible routines, but that's not enough. Today, God is calling you to fan into flame. It's not up to God. Paul told Timothy, fan into flame. God doesn't force you. The angels can't make you. We can't break you. It's up to you to allow the power and the essence and the glory and the wonders of God to always put you in awe. Every day, it's a new day. Every day I recommit my life to Christ. Every day I start all over. I've been saved for over 44 years. I'm more excited about Jesus today than I ever was. Got up at 6 a.m. I couldn't wait to read the Bible. I read 20 chapters of the book of Ezekiel, lit commentaries, prayed, got filled with the Spirit again. I can't wait every day to start the day with Jesus because every day with Jesus is greater than the day before. Every day with Jesus is always better because you're growing and it's being unpacked and the glory and knowledge of God and the implications of the resurrection get greater and clearer, more acute, more full, more complete as we mature. Man, I tell, I'm excited about Jesus. This is not an act. If you're with me, ask my kids, what do I do when I have free time? Reading the Bible or working out, one or the other, <laughs> or praying. I mean, I just, I mean, the only reason why I work out is God commanded me to because he said it'll help you spiritually. So I really, oh my God, it does help. Helps me to relax and focus more. So let me tell you something. This is real. And he wants it to be real for you, not just on Easter. And so he tells us to fan into flame that gift. Because God didn't give us a spirit of fear, power, love, and a sound mind. And what does he say that for? Because sometimes there's so much going on in the world that we could be afraid of. It stops that fire and that zeal. I mean, you could focus on a lot of things to be afraid of. If I told you, and please don't do this, I'm probably making a mistake. But if I told you for the next 60 seconds, think of everything that could go wrong in your life. You could get depressed. But you know what? God says, I want you to focus on me because he didn't give you a spirit of fear. I've learned a long time ago. I don't focus on what could go wrong. I focus on what is right. I focus on what God did. I focus on the fact that if God is with me, nobody can be against me. I focus on the fact that through faith, I can move mountains. I focus on the fact that every challenge is an opportunity because even the worst thing that could possibly happen to a human being getting crucified, getting buried, being in that ground for three full days 
wasn't enough to stop the Lord from being raised from the dead. And no one took his life. He rose himself above every power of hell, meaning the demons and darkness that were in Sheol tried to stop him from rising. But he just said to the devil, give me the keys. I'm here. He took the keys of hell and death and he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so he's not giving us the spirit of fear. Don't let anything kill your passion. He's giving us the spirit of power and of a sound mind because this world is not sound. It's insane. It's chaotic. But in Jesus, we have our anchor, right? He's given us a sound mind. When I focus on Jesus, I have a sound mind. When I focus on other things, sometimes it's not so sound. Sometimes it's out of tune. All right, verse 8. Do not be ashamed of me or the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. Now, this is the two verses I want to focus on today. He connects the gospel to this, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of our, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began, which has now been manifest through the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Wow. Amazing. This kind of like cuts down the superficial understanding of the gospel that so many people have been brought up with, whether traditional or institutional church, evangelicals, independent churches, charismatic churches. We were taught that Jesus rose from the dead just so we can go to heaven. We were taught that everything he did on the cross was just so we could have our sins forgiven. And it's almost like three-fourths of the Bible we can't even understand when we have that view. It's like we have this view just of an individual, you know, salvation that just helps us in the next life, has nothing to do with this life. No wonder why people disconnect their everyday life from being a Christian. I want to have a full Bible. Do you want to have a full Bible? I don't want to just look at it with a lens that only can interpret and receive 25% of it. It's not that what I first said was not true. It's true. We're going to heaven. Our sins are forgiven. But what is the purpose of the resurrection? What's the purpose of the gospel? He says it here. He says he saved us, not just so we can go to heaven, so we could be called. He saved us and called us. Obviously, you have to be saved first. You have to have your sins forgiven first. But it's so you could be called to a holy calling. Man. And so there is a calling on every person. Everybody has a, uh, an assignment. And it says it's a holy calling. A holy calling. And so first it says he called us. That means that there is an innate sense, almost like a, a hidden beacon of, of, of a sound or a voice or an impulse or a movement or an experience or a feeling inside that you can't just shake of what you're called to do. And before you're saved, you just don't know what it is. But after you're saved, this impulse gets bigger and brighter 
and it's deeper and more profound and more powerful. I remember before I was saved, uh, I just saw myself doing certain things for the rest of my life. I could not escape from a particular identity, uh, a a vocation, and, and it just had to do with music and some other things. And that was it. But after I came to Christ, within about six months, this impulse started emerging. I called, yeah, you could play the guitar, you could do it for my glory. He actually commanded me to play the guitar at one point because I put it down for almost 10 years. So that was part of it, but he, he, um, inside something emerged. I didn't realize I had a gift of doing certain things, which also included preaching and proclaiming proclaiming the gospel. If you would have told me in January, December of 1977 that in seven or eight months from then, I would be organizing events and preaching to hundreds of people and seeing the move of the Spirit, I would have thought you were totally out of your mind because it wasn't unlocked yet in my ecosystem, in the chambers of my soul. It wasn't possible for me to see it. See, there's certain things that are not possible until the Lord opens up the door of your heart and the light shines inside of you. The way you think of yourself now is probably not the way God thinks of you in the future. And if you don't know Christ, it is true. It is certain that you don't have a clue what you're really called to do. And so he saved us. That's first step. And then it says he called us. There's that little sense, that movement in there that begins to get clearer as time goes on. And what is it? He called us to a holy calling. That means it's different from anything else you've ever seen. That means it's not like the world. That means you're in the world, but not of the world. That means you're transformed. That means you're set apart. That means you are now God's possession. That means it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That means that the body is not only yours, but it's God's. It is a holy calling. That word holy doesn't mean that you become a religious robot. If you hang out with me at any point, you'll tell I am not uh, uh, superficially religious in that sense, although the word religion is a good word if you understand what it means biblically. I want to be fully connected to my humanity, which means having a good time, having fun, living life, enjoying life. But I could do it as a person fully connected to God, not just to humanity. That's what it means. You're set apart. There's a holy calling. And it's not because of our own works. Now here, salvation is never because of our own works. Remember that. But holy calling includes works. Do you see that? I don't want to confuse you. You're never saved because you're good enough. You'll never be able to clean up your act and come to God. You will never ever be able to earn God's love. You'll never be able to get to heaven because you're good. It's all on Christ. So we're saved with a holy calling, not because of our own good works. But calling means that there are works that we're called to do. 
In other words, you have an assignment. And so we see here in the syntax of these verses, in the context, if you just read it plainly, that here it's incredible. He's connecting the gospel in verse 8 with our calling that is holy in verse 9 with God's purpose because he says we're not saved because of our own works but because of his purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And so the gospel was never just about going to heaven. The gospel was about unveiling purpose to us. You don't create purpose. You discover your purpose. You don't uh, 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 make it happen because you're some great skilled person. You only walk in it as God enabled you to discover what he gave you before the world began. Now, did you see this verse? He said that he's given you a purpose in Christ Jesus before the world began. I mean, that's I'm going to read this part again. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So you see the word gospel in eight, saved in nine. So there was the gospel, the good news we received, it was saved, resulted in us being called to a holy calling, connected to his own purpose, which he gave us. What did he give us? Not just forgiveness of sins. Are you following this? Not just going to heaven. He enabled us to partake of his holy calling, which is based on his purpose, not your purpose, not your agenda, what you plan for your life, what you want to do. Throw that all out the window. You're going to just waste your time. It's based on his purpose. His grand narrative that we talked about in the beginning is at some point you're going to have the light bulbs go up, go out in your mind, and they are going to connect the dots of your life, and you're going to figure out that somehow or another the grand narrative, the historical events leading up to the resurrection are all connected to your life. You have to connect your life to the gospel, to the resurrection. And it says that the purpose of Christ was given you before the world began. Other translations, before time began or before the ages. It's all meaning the same thing. What it's saying is God knew you before Moses was around, before Abraham, before Noah and the flood, before Adam and Eve. God knew you before, get this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. He just said it. The purpose was given to you in Christ before the world began. Do you understand how profound that is? That means God knew you before he created the world, before, not just the world, Please hang on to your seat. Before he created time and space. So he had to create time and space before he made the world. That's why he says before time began, before the ages. That's the Greek word, ages. You know what this means? This means that God knew you before you and your mother's womb, way before. 
eons ago. And he gave you a purpose. And then at the right time, he backed up and gave you a human body to walk out that purpose. In other words, your purpose precedes your birth, which means you weren't merely born, you were sent. See, if you're an atheist and you believe that everything's through time and chance, matter, emotion, and that everything here is an accident, natural selection, and evolution, and, and all these things, if you believe that everything is an accident and there's no supernatural explanation for the world and no intelligent design, you were just merely born. I feel bad for you. But if you know that this is not an accident, that this is part of a grand narrative, and that the cosmos came through fiat, a voice from God, and God is the impetus, the power, the ability, the generator, the dynamo before the Big Bang, if you want to use that term, the Big Bang behind the Big Bang, the mover behind all movement, if you believe that, then you have to understand that you weren't just born, you were sent. Did this, is this getting through to you? And that being sent is connected to the gospel. And so he says in verse 10, he gave us this in Christ Jesus before the world began, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is mind-boggling. Verse 10 is saying that the purpose that we had in Christ was manifest or revealed through the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, which means that you can't even know your own purpose if you don't know Jesus. It means you can't even know yourself if you don't know God. It means that to the extent that you know God, you can know yourself. Read this. Look at the grammatical syntax, the context. Look at it. He saved us with a holy calling by not his, our works, but through the appearance of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying here is he gave us a purpose and it was manifest through the appearing of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus walked the earth in the Gospels, it was my story, not just his story. Did you hear what I just said? When Jesus walked the earth, when he died, when he was buried, I died with him. I was buried with him. When he rose, I rose with him. In other words, every aspect of my life, not just when I come to church on Sunday, not just when I'm singing songs, everything in my life pivots off of Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news, not just when I'm singing, when I'm praying, when I'm reading or when I become my Christian self on Sunday. The gospel is good news and gives meaning to ordinary things, to minutia, to washing dishes, to walking a dog, to shopping, to having a vacation, to being who I am individually, to being and, and enjoying life with my family. Do you understand that every single thing is connected to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? The resurrection of Christ gives meaning to everything you do in your world. The most miserable people in the world are those who have no sense of purpose. That's why 
it is a known fact that men who retire and they don't have any kind of sense of purpose, they die quickly. Have you connected your life to his resurrection? Do you derive meaning just from socialization through the amount of likes you get on Facebook, through the amount of money you make, through trying to become a celebrity or trying to just have a few nice friends? Do you get motivated just by amusement, entertainment, having fun, trying to have a life of comfort? Your life is a lot more important than that. What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so Jesus and his appearing is connected to God's purpose for us. His appearing, his appearing connected to our holy calling. His appearing, his resurrection was all about not just going to heaven but us beginning to walk in his purpose. Let's see what else he says. And so he says, the purpose that he gave us in Christ has now been manifest through the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death. What is death? Now, in natural terms, science can only go so far. They're not able to delve into the next realm. They can only have a three-dimensional microscope, an empirical Understanding the world based on the five senses, what they could prove in a laboratory. Try to prove love in a laboratory. Try to prove colors. That's another philosophical and scientific conundrum, but I don't want to get there. The most powerful force in the world cannot be proved in a laboratory, right? But that's another story. What we have to understand is science has defined death as a cessation of life based on the heart stopping and the vital organs being inactive and then decay starts and your body just wastes away. But that's not the definition of death. According to the Bible, there were four things involved in death when Adam sinned. The first thing that happened was when Adam sinned, his human spirit was cut off from having fellowship with God, so he became dead to God. He still had a human spirit, still had a sense of consciousness, and still had a sense of right and wrong to a point, because still an image bearer of God. But the fullness of walking with God and walking in God's presence, that was cut off. So the first thing death is, is separation from God. The second thing that happened is separation from fellow humans. The curse brought challenges between him and his wife and his family. He says to Eve, uh, because you partook of this fruit, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That implies that there's going to be some real tension. And by explanation and extrapolation, you could involve children and families. So he abolished death. He gave us the ability to understand how to deal with that reality. And we'll get to that in a minute. The third thing that happened when Adam sinned is he died to his purpose. He could not fully walk out the call to cultivate the earth that God gave him in Genesis 1.28. The fourth thing that happened was he died to the creation 
in, in a sense where animals were once subservient to him, and now he had to be afraid of vipers. He had to be afraid of lions and tigers, and there was weather patterns. And when he would plant, there would be thorns and thistles, not just beautiful crops. And so four things were involved in death. Death to God, death to one another, death to his own understanding of purpose, and death to creation. When Jesus came, he abolished death. You hear what I'm saying? He gave us back a relationship with the Father. That's, that's enough to shout right there. Secondarily, he gave us his agape love that we could love one another. And we could even overcome betrayal. We could forgive people for the worst ills. We would have the love of God that even as Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We can do the same with people who have hurt us. It may be hurtful. It may be difficult. It may be very traumatic. But yet God says, I come to bring healing to the broken heart. He gives you love that overcomes all uh, ill will towards us. The third thing, our purpose. He gets you to understand as you walk with him, a sense of your purpose starts to unveil, as I already mentioned. And fourth, because the fourth thing depends on the human race, not just on an individual, we are reconciled to creation in a sense that we could steward our influence in creation. But until the gospel permeates more and more of the world, we're not going to see the fullness of their reconciliation. But as I said in the first services, there are places in the world where there's such a concentration of believers, percentage-wise, that even the earth is healed. We saw that in Amalanga in, uh, 20 years ago in uh, Guatemala, where I think out of 20,000 people, 17 or 18,000 people got saved. Bars closed. The cops had nothing to do. They didn't need courts anymore. And the fruit of the land and the vegetation of the land was massive. There were tomatoes this big, you know, bananas. I mean, you need two people to carry it. God healed the land. It brought it back to Eden. Uh, there are parts in uh, Fiji where uh, there was uh, destruction with the, uh, the water and, and the fish and, the, and, and, and there's hardly any plant life and everything. And once there was a revival that broke out, God appeared over the water and started bringing healing. And, and, and within a few weeks, the water was teeming with fish. I mean, there's so many stories. If you're interested, check out the Sentinel Group and their transformation videos. The more the gospel permeates the earth, the more creation will be reconciled back to God. And we're a part of that. We've seen it in Sunset Park as we came here in 1981. It was terrible here. We would abandon buildings and all that, and all the fasting, praying, gospel permeation, and different things. As partnering with other churches, we saw this community fully transformed, quality of life within 12 years without gentrification. The more the gospel invades and permeates the city, the more quality of life shifts. And so Jesus abolished death. At his second coming, all the creation will come back to him. And he abolished death and brought light and life and immortality to life through the gospel. And as we look at that, he brought life. That's the word agape, uh, that's the word zoe or zoen. That word means God's kind of life. It means a life filled with peace, 
a life filled with joy, a life filled with patience, a life filled with his love. It's, it's life that starts now. It's called eternal life in the New Testament. Here it's just called life. Uh, Jesus calls it eternal life a lot in the Gospel of John. But hear this, church. You don't wait till you die physically to experience that. It comes now in this life. You could have that life. He brought life and immortality. That means this life won't ever die. It's uncorruptible, incorruptible. It can't ever perish. It can't ever end. You see, so many things that we're grasping for in this world are fleeting. You have an investment property. It's worth a lot of money. One day, the next day, the market crashes. It's worth nothing. You thought you had built a good family of friendships, and then one day, you don't have those friends. There's so many things that are here. Even our life is a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. But we have to understand is that even now, this life will never be taken. You could have it forever and ever. How many want that Amen. life? Amen. We pray that you were blessed by this word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at resurrectionchurchofny.com or give us a call at 718-436-0242 and be sure to follow us on Instagram at reschurchnyc. Take care and God bless.